You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. forefront. My name is Denia Perez. My pronouns are she, her, and ella in Spanish. And I am joining you all this morning from California. I'm currently visiting family, but I live in Brooklyn full-time and have been attending Forefront since the fall of 2018. And today I am hoping to continue carrying the torch of our winning preaching relay team by guiding us and unpacking one of the stranger Bible stories of a woman named Yael. So y'all have heard from my fellow preaching boot campers the last few weeks, and I'm excited and so grateful to carry the torch this week in helping us dive into this scripture. However, before we dive in, I want to share more about myself and how my upbringing in the U.S. shaped my reading of this passage. So I was born in a place called Tlanepantla. It's a mouthful. Tlanepantla de Vaz, Mexico. It is a municipality slightly north of Mexico City. And... When I was 11 months old, my parents and I migrated to the United States. Like millions before us, we left our home country in search of a safer and more opportune life. I lived and grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area for most of my life and was raised not too differently than my U.S.-born cousins and friends. The key difference, however, between my U.S.-born friends and family and my parents and I was that we were undocumented and thus lived with the looming fear of deportation for a majority of our lives. The possibility of being deported or having my parents be deported led me to follow a tradition common to many, but not all, undocumented people living in the United States. Living in the shadows, as it has colloquially been called, um, or keeping my family's legal status a secret, uh, was a tradition born out of a need for survival. And it's one that my parents very seriously inculcated in me from a young age. I was eight to be exact when my parents sat me down and told me that we were different than some of our family members in that we did not have papeles or papers. And because of that, I needed to be careful 
to not share this detail with anyone outside of our family. I was told that in order to keep myself safe and my parents safe, I should never talk to anyone about our legal status because to do so would be to jeopardize our safety and our ability to continue living in the country we had to call home. So thus began the long list of things I'm still processing in therapy. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, um, in addition to keeping our status a secret, I was encouraged to keep my head down and work hard to assimilate and bow down to and act in deference to the country and the laws that provided us with the safety and opportunities that Mexico had not. And I followed this script for most of my life. I bought into the idea that if I worked hard and never caused trouble, my family and I could earn our citizenship. That if I obeyed my parents and never spoke of our status or got in any trouble or involved myself in any sort of activism or activities that could expose us, good things would come my way. I bought into the idea that my light skin and proximity to whiteness could save my family, that my lack of an accent and my appearance could keep me from ever exposing the fact that I was undocumented and that my parents were undocumented. And most of all, I bought into this idea that silence, that my silence and acquiescence would keep us safe. Fortunately for me and the world, I was wrong. My parents were in deportation proceedings for a majority of my adolescence and early 20s. And I continue to be the only person in my immediate family without legal status. However, I want to draw your attention not to the complexity of the U.S.'s immigration laws, but rather the point at which God helped me see that perhaps being an obedient and pious person was not how change and justice happens. That sometimes in order for justice and progress to prevail, disobedience is necessary. In 2010, and there should be a picture of me and a group of folks that correlate to this, but uh, in 2010, I found a community of undocumented youth, uh, commonly referred to as dreamers, that helped me unlearn a lot of the harmful narratives I had internalized. They helped me break with the tradition around silence and assimilation, and instead, harness the power of what the late John Lewis called good trouble. After many years of silence, I began speaking out about my legal status and participating in immigration rallies. I spoke at coming out rallies, shared my story with various electeds and provided support to my friends staging civil disobediences. My experience as a white passing white Latina and my trajectory from obedience and complacency to outspoken troublemaker helped me recognize the holiness in Yael's actions and story. So 
who is Yale and what in the heck is she known for? So let's dive in. The passage from the book of Judges, um, Judges 4.21 specifically, that I was assigned to says this. But Yael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. If you, like me, were unfamiliar with this particular Bible story and this passage, you might need to reread and unpack what just happened. So let's do it together. Let's reread and try to practice, process, excuse me, what just happened. Yael, which side note, there are different pronunciations of this name. This one just feels the most natural to me because Spanish was my first language, but I digress. We come back. Um, so if you have a different pronunciation, that is okay. I'm just using this one. So Yael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. One of the most striking things about this passage is that if you take it by itself, as we just did, we simultaneously know so much and so little from these two sentences. So using the incredibly sophisticated five W's that I learned in elementary school, the who, what, when, where, why, let's take stock of what we do and don't know. So who? So we know that there are at least two people here, someone named Gael, who we know is married to someone named Haber, and another person, an unnamed he, to be exact, and maybe the he in question is Haber, but we don't know for sure. So let's move on to the what. We have two people. So what happened? We learned that Yael, wife of Haber, takes a hammer and a peg into her hands and drives said peg into this unknown man's head until the peg is all the way through into the ground. And she not only does this incredibly violent thing, she does it while he's sleeping and naturally <laughs> dies as he dies as a result. But what we don't know from just this one passage is why she takes this action or when she takes this action. So to give us a little bit more context, both historical and biblical about what's going on. I want to dive in and share some of the information I learned from the internet. So because I'm a lawyer and citation is important to me, I will shout out, especially this website, Bible Study Tools, which helped me get a sense of what else was happening at the time. So shout out them. And what I learned um, from that website and reading the rest of this chapter is that what was happening at the time was that Israel, we have Israel over here, um, was at war with the Canaanites. And Judges 4 tells us that God sold Israel into the hand of 
Jabin, Chabin, king of Canaan, because the Israelites were doing what was evil in God's sight. At the same time, a prophetess named Deborah was judge over Israel, and people would go to her in matters of justice. Judges 4, 6 tells us that she summoned a man named Barak, who God chose to be the leader of Israel's army against Jabin, Habin's Canaanites. And so the other thing we learn is that there's a man named Sisera, who is the commander of the Canaanite army. So Jabin is maybe, if we want to compare, maybe like a president or like an elected person that rules over the Canaanites. And then Sisera is like his commander of the army. So we have Sisera, who's the commander of the Canaanite army. And then we have uh, Barak, who God has chosen to be the leader of Israel's army. And we learn from reading that Sisera was a powerful and cruel man. Um, he's described as cruel and as someone who oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. So Deborah goes on to tell Barak to gather his men for battle. And in response, Barak says, quote, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So Barak says this to Deborah as she tells him, like, hey, you've been chosen to leave you know, Israel's army. So understandably, that would be my response to honestly, if I were Barack is like, cool. So you're coming with me, right? <laughs> I don't have to do this alone. And, you know, Deborah agrees to go, but tells Barack that because of the way he responded to God's calling, there would be no glory for him in Sisera's defeat. In fact, God was going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman instead but does not say which woman. Um, that woman, in case you have not already guessed, would be Yael. So shortly after Deborah the prophetess and Barak's exchange, um, Barak's army meets Sisera's army in battle. And it was very clear that the Israelites were winning. Uh, Sisera's army was losing, and so he reads the tea leaves and realizes, like, I need to spare myself and get out of here before we get slaughtered. So in order to save his own life, Cicera uh, flees on foot. Where does he flee? Right to the tent of Yael. So Yael sees Cicera and actually comes out to meet him. She says, turn aside, my Lord, do not be afraid. And at the time, in that moment, Sisera had no reason to be afraid. At the time, we learned that Yael's people were at peace with Sisera's. Yael was not an Israelite. She had no stake in this battle or in this war. So he had no reason to suspect her or feel like she was going to betray him in any way. And also at the time, women, you know, were known to be hospitable. If a woman's inviting you into the tent, there was probably no ill will. You were probably going to be taken care of in some way or another. And initially that was Cicera's experience. Yael went on to show Cicera every possible kindness. She covers him with a rug. She 
you know, reassures him, tries to comfort him when he asks for water. She actually gives him milk. And Cicera, after being fed and clothed, um, drifts off to sleep. So when he does, Yael sees this opportunity and seizes it. And if we read a little further past, you know, the first passage we read, we learn that as Barak was pursuing Sisera, because remember Sisera fled on foot, Yael comes out to meet Barak and says to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So Barak goes into her tent and sees Sisera there lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. And we learn that the war isn't won by this one deed, but it was the beginning of the end of the Canaanites' reign over Israel. And if we go back a little and remember, you know, the description of Sisera was that he was a cruel man who had oppressed the Israelites for over 20 years. And so what can we learn from this courageous woman's story? What does this incredibly violent action and betrayal of the tradition of hospitality on Yale's part, what can it teach us? And there are many ways to interpret this story. I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned here, but the most striking to me was the fact that Cicera's murder, um, this very violent action that Yael took, I mean, to take a tent peg and just drive it, not just through head, but all the way through until it hits the ground is, um, is very intense. Uh, it's a very intentional way to kill someone. Um, so it's not only very violent, you know, and methodical, um, it also goes and or went against everything she knew about hospitality, which again was something that was culturally very important and significant at the time. She acts in contradiction to this tradition of hospitality and uses her privilege as a Gentile, as a non-Israelite, non-Jew, to lull Sisera into a false sense of security before killing him. Um, again, if we want to think about it in sort of modern terms, she uses her privilege in order to gain access to this person, to Sisera, and harm him for the greater good, because that's essentially what happened. We know that this one deed did not end the war, but it was significant in the Israelites' eventual victory. So how does how does her story, how do her actions of betraying this tradition, this cultural norm, and using her privilege for the sake of justice, delivering justice to the Israelites, um, what can this tell us or show us um, about our own lives and about the metaphorical or literal Ciceras in our lives that we can betray or confront by using our privilege or breaking with cultural or traditional norms. And I think we all probably can think of a few examples. There are so many contemporary movements 
for racial justice, economic justice, immigration, climate change, that on a broader level, we can all think about and reflect on how our own actions or our own privileges can contribute to that greater movement. And if we also want to zoom in on our own lives, I think we can also probably think about metaphorical or literal caesareas in our own lives that we can challenge or confront um, by betraying different traditions or expectations and using our privilege to advance progress and justice. I think that Yael, like Jesus, broke with tradition for the greater good. Uh, She answered God's calling and really acted like Jesus has acted in various stories in the Bible. We know that Jesus was no, you know, rule follower. I mean, he did when it was necessary, but he was not shy about breaking rules um, or calling out contradictions and injustice and challenging relationally abusive behavior when it meant that it could free those on the margins, those people who are being oppressed. You know, in Matthew 23, he denounces religious rulers for heaping impossible burdens on people. He touches lepers, um, even though at the time the rule said that doing so would make him unclean. And he healed on the Sabbath, (laughs) even though, you know, no work was supposed to be done. He was like, all right, well, there should be exceptions. And this is one of those exceptions. So I was thinking as we were reading and processing the story that Yael is really just following in the footsteps of Jesus. She's acting Christ-like by betraying this tradition of hospitality for the greater good. And in in this case, the greater good was to help um, Israel win this battle and defeat this man who was who had been oppressing them for over 20 years. And I believe that she is a great example of someone who does not get caught up in following religious or cultural rules and instead thinks about God's calling, answers to it, and answers that calling by betraying this tradition of hospitality and using her privilege as a woman um, in that way, you know, she was a woman who seemed non-threatening. So in that, in that way, she was, you know, she was privileged in that. So Sarah did not see her as a threat. And so she used that to her advantage, right? So she uses this to challenge the evil and oppression into this world. And I think that this story really calls on us to think about the metaphorical or literal Ciceras in our life, to think about the ways that certain traditions or cultural norms have made us complacent, have maybe lulled us into a false sense of security or silence because we're not either directly impacted or we think, you know, it's someone else's problem. This will get solved because, you know, other people are working on it. We all have relative privilege depending on what spaces we occupy. So for example, I may not have the privilege of citizenship, but I am a cisgendered woman. I speak English without an accent. I'm 
relatively light skinned. And so that is a privilege um, in this country, in a country that values whiteness and proximity to whiteness. And while I have various challenges, I also have a lot of blessings. And so this story really reminded me of, of my own journey and realizing my own privileges and power and not denying or ignoring those privileges, but acknowledging them and acting upon them. And it also reminded me that, you know, while some traditions may have been established with the best intentions, you know, they're not always going to be useful. And, and sometimes the right, the just thing to do is to break with those traditions um, because we need to do it so that we can usher a more just and loving Christianity, um, a Christianity that values holy disruption and betrayal, that acknowledges the oppression and suffering in the world, that, that doesn't shy away from it, but actually acknowledges it, bears witness to it, and arms us with the courage to face it head on and put a metaphorical and literal stake in it. So I want to thank you all for going through that journey with me. Um, if that was also your first time seeing that passage and familiarizing yourself with the story, welcome. I hope I gave you a little bit to chew on. And with that, I would like to end with some prayer, lead us in prayer. Dear God, um, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to be present with my forefront family through Zoom um, on this beautiful Sunday to unpack and process Yael's story. I'm so grateful for stories like Yael's that teach us that sometimes the, the right thing to do is to disobey and go against what we've been taught and everything that we know that is safe. I pray that you continue to arm us with the courage that we need to confront all of the metaphorical and literal ciseras in our life and in our world in order to usher in the next 500 years of Christianity. In your name, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.